Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and i got a good show for you today. We are doing a trade deadline special. The deadline happened July 31st. The Yankees made a lot of moves. Mets, not so much. We're going to check in on both situations in this show. That's going to start with our opening tip, which is going to be coming up next. I'm going to be joined by Dan Federico to talk Yankees baseball. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Joe DeMeo, a contributor to the Seven Line and Amazing Avenue, where he, we're going to focus on the Mets and more specifically the minor league side of the operation. The major league side's a mess for those who missed it. 25-4 says it all. You don't need to go further than that. So we're going to take a look at the minor league side with Joe. So make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show for our two-minute drill. We're offering my take on the latest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I have some thoughts. I will share those with you later. Until then, settle in for our opening tip, or I'll be joined by Dan Federico, talk Yankee baseball right after this. Y'all ready for this? All right, and we're back with today's opening tip. We're going to talk New York Yankees baseball. Yankees were very busy the trade day line, doing a whole bunch of deals to try and catch the Boston Red Sox and the American League East. Joining me today to talk about the Yankees is Dan Federico from the Bronx to Bushville blog. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing good. Before you get started, can you tell me your background with the Yankees and covering them? Sure. I um, I started writing for smaller blogs, and uh, I always had the chance to cover the Yankees while when I first started. And kind of just through finagling and talking to people, uh, I was able to get into the press box, cover the Yankees for a couple of years. Uh, not on a full-time basis, but I, I went to the press box a number of times. And, yeah, just basically met people, spoke to different scouts, kind of got my way in through, you know, talking to people that don't cover the prospects. And that's big today. Everybody loves to hear about the baby bombers. So I kind of stuck with that route and uh, just covered the team in general. So I did it for four years. Uh, I still am pretty active on Twitter. And, yeah, just continue to follow and write about them to this day. All right, cool. Let's go back. Before we get started with the latest deadline move, let's go back to last week when they traded off uh, Brandon Drury and four prospects to get Zach Britton from the Orioles and uh, Jay Happ, who now has hand, foot, and mouth disease, like Syndergaard did uh, from the Blue Jays. Do you think they gave up too much in those deals? Do you think they gave, they got, like, how do you feel about those acquisitions? I think for the Jay Happ deal, I think it was fair. Um, I know that a lot of people were kind of curious as to why. They traded Brandon Jury, and, you know, once Judge went out, I think Billy McKinney would have been a solid replacement even for a couple weeks to kind of take his place. But when you think about it, the Yankees, they're in win-now mode right now, and uh, they have World Series aspirations, and they're not going to be able to get as far as they like when they're starting a Luis Sessa or Domingo Herman every fifth day. Um, Jay Happ was probably the best pitcher available. I mean, Chris Archer maybe overall is better, but he did cost a lot as well. So I do think they made the right move by trading for him. The only thing I would say is not necessarily a complaint, but, you know, jury stock was a little low when they did trade him, and they could have possibly gotten something more for him in the offseason uh, if he continued to play as well as he did in AAA and maybe show some stuff at the big league level. But the way Andar is playing right now, I don't think there's going to be much regret about trading for, tra- excuse me, trading Drury. So in the end, I think it was a, a fair deal for both sides, and I think Jay Happ was a good get for the Yankees. 
Okay. One deal I didn't understand was the idea that they had to trade Adam Warren to Seattle just get uh, bonus money back. Like I know he was being very, being he was heavily in the bullpen, pitched a two seventy zero ERA for a game trade. Why do you think they dealt him off just for bonus money? So the thing about Warren is I, I still also and I'm in agreement with you where I don't know if it was necessarily the right move right now. I mean he's proven over the years he's been with the Yankees since 2012. He could start. He could be a long man in the bullpen. He could pitch later in games. He's pitched in high-level situations, low-level situations. He did pretty much everything that a pitcher could do. And the one thing you always have to keep in mind is that he did it in a tough market. And I feel like pitching especially is something that you have to look at. If you could succeed in New York, you know, you're, you're going to be good pretty much anywhere. So I was a little confused with the trade, um, kind of piggybacking off that. I don't know if Lance Lynn – you know, is an upgrade more so. I think they, they see him in that same type of role, and I know they did have interest in Lynn during the offseason, so I guess there's something there um, when it comes with him. But the one thing I do have to say about the international uh, trade money is that the Yankees are one of the few teams that kind of use that in a major way, and ever since that trade, and they made a couple of smaller trades to get money, they've already signed the eighth best international free agent and the 10th best international free agent, both according to MLB.com. But they signed um, OCL Rodriguez. He's a pitcher. He was the first one they signed for $600,000, 16 years old from Cuba. You know, he's supposedly one of the top pitching prospects from on the international market. And then late last night, they signed Alexander Vargas, who's ranked number eight on the same list, Uh, switch hitting shortstop fast, uh, Supreme defender. So, when the Yankees get rid of these prospects and they trade them, you know, like they traded Tyler Austin, they traded Drury, McKinney, all these guys, they got to replenish the farm system. And bringing in these international free agents is a great way to do it. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, and I only noticed this a couple of days ago because I did some research on it. 15 of the Yankees' top 30 prospects are international free agents. And when you look at their big league roster, I mean, Chapman and Torres, they signed – with other teams, but they're international free agents. Luis Severino, Gary Sanchez, Miguel Andujar, they're international free agents. So the Yankees are big in that market. And while I do think they could have got more for Warren, um, I think they got enough where Cashman was happy with kind of using that money for these players that are years away, but will eventually, hopefully for the Yankees, turn into something more. Well, that was very impressive. I did not realize that many players in that system or just international signings. Yeah, it's you know it's something that I like. I said I kind of just did research recently. You notice a lot of the the Yankees do have a lot of Latin players, and that's where they're coming from. I mean, if they're not playing in the states or in Canada, you're, they're not getting drafted. So you know, a lot of these guys are coming as international uh, free agents, and it's something that a lot of teams haven't you know utilized yet. I don't think, but I think they're going to start catching on when you see teams like the Yankees getting so many prize players with that money. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you also brought up a last question: the Lance Lynn trade. Like, do you think there was motivation behind that deal besides just replacing Warren? Do you think he has a bigger role in pl- in place for the Yankees going forward? So for Lance Lynn, I mean, like I said before, the Yankees did have interest in him. Um, obviously, they didn't go that route uh, during the off season, but I think for the most part, he will be that Warren guy where he'll be a long reliever. I mean, you saw today; he kind of that's what they're looking for. If somebody like Sonny Gray or someone struggles he could come in and do the job. But at the same time, again, when you see Sonny Gray struggle like that, 
you never know. I mean, Lance Lynn could take that spot in the rotation uh, from him. He could, you know, spot start, you know, Severino struggling a little bit. Maybe he's tired. You need to give him a day off. Lance Lynn could start there. You know, so you kind of plug and play somewhere you need it. I do think that his numbers are bad based off of, uh, you know, not much spring training because he's one of the guys who signed later in the offseason. Um, he has a great ground ball percentage of 50.8%, which is well above league average. I think that's something that will play well in Yankee Stadium. Uh, so I think the Yankees kind of see him as not only just being in the Warren role where he'll be a multi reliever type pitcher, but if they need a spot starter or somebody gets hurt and they need to plug him in, I think they're comfortable with him as a starter every fifth day. So I'm guessing they didn't see Warren in that role anymore. Uh, he hasn't pitched in that role recently, so they, they obviously know more than we do um, in seeing him you know, every day and working with him. So they, they obviously like Lance Lynn more, and I'm thinking that he's going to get a few starts before the season. All right, is there an area of this team that you were surprised they did not address prior to the trade-in, like an area of need you think they just didn't get done for some reason? Well, there was you know, some conversation about getting a bat, perhaps. I know Curtis Granderson was mentioned. Carlo, um, Mabin was mentioned. Andrew McCutcheon was mentioned. Um, but I think that the fact that they didn't go out and get a bat, that uh, Frazier maybe close to him, which was huge because, you know, he's salivating at the opportunity to kind of compete and get a shot at getting some time with Judge out. So I, I, I think they addressed every need they could have. I mean, they didn't necessarily have to upgrade the bullpen, but they did with Zach Brink. Another starter they got Jay had. Um, they fortified their pitching staff a lot. So I think outside of a bat, which they may not even necessarily as good as it could be heading into the playoffs. There were a lot of rumors earlier this year they were looking at a guy like Jacob DeGrom. The Mets had no interest in parting with him. If you were in charge and you were working with Cashman, what kind of offer do you think that they would have made that could have gotten the Mets to bite to get DeGrom over the Bronx? I had this conversation a lot on Twitter, you know, talking to people, kind of putting it out there. I think the trade that I don't know if the Yankees would have offered, you know the Mets wouldn't have accepted anyway, but I think a perfect trade for the Mets would have been Miguel Andujar, Justice Sheffield, Clint Frazier, and then you give them a young prospect that has a lot of upside. I'm not sure if you know, but there's a pitcher named Luis Medina in single A right now. Or maybe not even single A. I don't know. He's very young, uh, but he's very crude but has a ton of upside. Um, he's, you know, kind of struggling right now, but he's somebody who could the Mets could see and say, you know, they can mold him into another one of their great pitchers. If you get that package, if you're the Mets, think about it this way. You have a Clint Frazier, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto outfield, a bunch of young, controllable, high-upside players that can play both offense and defense. You get Andahar, you plug him in at third base, him and Ahmed Rosario are the left side of your infield for the next decade. You get Justice Sheffield. Granted, he's not going to be Jacob DeGrom, but he could be a 2-3 starter on the Mets, sliding, pitch every fifth day of high upside. And then, you know, you get this lotto ticket in Luis Medina or whoever you want to choose. There's somebody you could develop in your system over time, correct them if you think there are any issues. So I think that would have been a great deal. I don't think there was a trade out there that would have beat that as well. You know, the Mets, they, they kind of had this thing where, they don't want to work with the Yankees under any circumstances. So, you know, the trade was going to be hard to pull off anyway. But I think if anything, that would have definitely been the best deal to kind of get it done. Yeah, I know DeGrom would have helped. That's with the, the uh, struggles that Luis Severino has had of late. Like, how worried do you think the Yankees are about his last couple of bad starts? 
they, they have to be worried. I mean, if you look at his numbers in July, 6.5 ADRA, 35 hits in 26 innings, batters are hitting 324 against him. He's the ace of your staff. want to see that. But at the same time, he's somebody who has carried this staff all year. If there's anybody who has come out and pitched every fifth day to the best of his abilities and done his job to the best of his abilities, I think that there may be some fatigue setting in. He's thrown 100 pitches, over 100 pitches a number of times. He's gone into games a number of times. And this is why you circle back and kind of bring in the Lance Lynn type of pitcher. Severino, I, I wouldn't I, – you know, there are no indications that he's hurt, but there could certainly be a rest day against one of these low-level teams that they're going to be playing over the next couple months, and that's where you kind of could throw Lance Lynn or uh, Louis Sessa, whoever you want to pick, and uh, you can put him in. So I think, you know, this, this Boston game coming up, you want to see him turn things around, and if he doesn't, I, I don't want to say it's a cause for concern because he's been so good all year long. Um, I know there's been some rumors that he may be tipping pitches, which could be more of a positive because at least you know you could work that out, and it's not necessarily fatigue or an injury. So I, I wouldn't say that he's you know in trouble. The Yankees should be worried yet. All right. So like last question is. They obviously have a big series of the Red Sox this weekend. Need to make out ground them, try and win the East, and stay out of the wild card game. Who's one guy you have your eye on that, you need, that the Yankees need to step up in order to catch Boston? All right, so I'm going to cheat a little. I'm not going to give you one. I'll give you one position, though, and that's starting pitching. I mean, you can't ask for much more out of this lineup. There's contributors from one through nine. I know there are injuries going on right now. I know between Gary Sanchez and Austin Romine, there hasn't been much coming out of the catcher position. Wins championships. Now, um, excuse me, Masiro Tanaka, he's been one of the most surprising in a good way pitchers this last month. He kind of looks like who the Yankees had during the playoff run last year. He has a 179 ERA through the month of June, so you want him to kind of stay on top of that. Um, Sonny Gray, I mean, today, the, the three or four starts before this, he looked kind of like the pitcher that he pitched in Oakland, who the Yankees acquired last year. Uh, today was not as good, but you know, whether it's going to be him or Lance Lynn, you kind of want that person to provide stability. You know, they have the deep bullpen, and you know you, you, you know you have those weapons, so if you could just get five innings out of one of these guys, that would be a positive. And then remember, you know, you have Jay Happ, who obviously now has the hand, mouth, and foot disease, which, you know, wherever that came from, we don't know, but he's somebody who they acquired specifically for the Red Sox and to catch the Red Sox. So you kind of want him to pitch the way he did in his first start with the Yankees. So if there's anybody I'm looking towards, it's, it's got to be the pitching staff. All right, I know you've got to run. So before you go, you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the other stuff you're up to? Sure. Just uh, anybody listening on Twitter, you can follow me at Dan J. Federico. I'm a very active. I tweet throughout all the games. I get some prospect reports from some scouts I always put out there. So I say definitely follow me on social media. I still write for a number of platforms, not as much as I'd like, but I still do. Bronx to Bushville being the main one. So definitely follow me on there. And yeah, just follow along. Mostly I would say Twitter because that's where I put out all the good Yankee stuff. So definitely follow me on there. All right. Thanks for the time, Dan. Of course, man. No problem. All right, that was Dan Federico talking Yankees baseball. Coming up next, I'm going to talk Mets with Joe DeMeo from who contributes to the Seven Line Army and uh, Mason Avenue. Right after this, can you believe this ball game at Shea? Oh, brother! Three and two to Mookie Wilson. 
Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. All right, welcome back to the Just End the Suffering podcast. I just talked Yankees baseball with Dan Federico. Now we're going to shift gears to the Mets. Joining me today to talk about what the Mets did at the trade deadline is Joe DeMeo, a contributor for the Seven Line and Amazing Avenue, and who has a very good knowledge of the Mets minor league system. Joe, how are you doing today? Good, Mike. How are you? Doing good. Before we get before we dive into it, can you tell me how you got so focused on the minor league side for the Mets? I used to go to a bunch of minor league games back when I was a kid in New Haven, Connecticut. They were the New Haven Ravens, Colorado and Colorado. And all of a sudden, I just started getting into the fact that there was baseball outside of just what was on TV. And I would say I really started getting super into it around 2003 when Phil Umber got drafted by the Mets. Obviously, this went. Obviously, they didn't do much of the deadline. They shipped out uh, Familia for a less than ideal return. They got a decent prospect for Cabrera. Do you think they could have done more at the deadline of what they had? A little bit. Not, not a ton. Uh, I wanted to see Bautista gone. To be honest with you, Jose Bautista. I just thought there was no purpose in carrying him into August. Yes, they can deal him on waivers, but I think with the fact that he makes no money, he's going to get claimed on waivers, which limits your market to that one team, and you basically have to take whatever they want to give you. Yeah, I know. He, he was one I was surprised they didn't get more from, especially when guys like Lennis Martin and Cameron Maven started switching teams. That was weird. Yeah, definitely weird. Uh, but people are saying the the offers were so low that they didn't even bother. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me. One thing I also didn't understand was like the whole philosophy behind Zach Wheeler because he's been hurt forever. Finally, he's having a good year. He's on a good run. He's like 3-0 with, I believe, a 2.56 ERA the last six starts. They choose to keep him instead of trade him. Do you agree with that decision? I guess it depends when you ask me. I really was torn on Wheeler. I thought trading him was probably the right idea, as long as they got the proper return, which it sounds like they weren't getting. At the same time, I think there's an argument that you should let whoever the new front office is make decisions related to players that impact 2019 and beyond. Yeah, the problem with that, obviously, is the fact that like he's going to be a free agent after 19. When you get to the winter, that you have a bunch of pitchers who are free agents out on the trade market just like him, so his value is probably not going to be much higher than it is now. I, I agree. Yeah. So that's, That was more why I leaned towards they should have dealt him, but it sounds to me like, they were seeking at least the top 100 prospect, and there was no one offering that. Yeah, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Now, I mean, a lot of the problem that the Mets have right now is that the farm system has been, has been bad. They haven't gotten much out of it in recent years. I've seen mixed reports on it with some like a casual observer saying they have nothing in there. And some more uh, detailed guys say, you know, like the talent at the lower level just has to develop. Where do you fall on that in terms of where the farm system actually is right now? Definitely the latter. And things are starting to come on a bit. Uh, MLB Pipeline updated their top 100 prospects. And the Mets had four of the top 100, which is pretty decent. That's middle of the pack, so there's nothing wrong with that. And they have a lot of guys at the lower levels, like you mentioned, that are really progressing finally. So I think 
things are working in the right direction. What do you think the problem has been with like the last few years? Nick, it's been more of just poor drafting or like bad development in terms of like getting these guys ready to play in the bigs. More poor development. They've actually drafted pretty successfully. Uh, people like to bash into their draft, and that's just because they're saying we're not getting superstars out of it. But the reality is, there's so many teams that struggle to draft big leaguers at all, and basically in the Sandy Ellison era, almost every first round pick has had at worst a cup of coffee. So there, there's there's something for their drafting. They've been more aggressive internationally, specifically the last couple of years, with Andres Jimenez, who's now their number one prospect. Uh, Ronnie Mauricio looked like a potential stud. And this year they signed Francisco Alvarez, catcher from Venezuela, who got the biggest signing bonus for international free agent in team history. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Jimenez, who I've been following this year because he started out in St. Lucie. He had a huge first half, went to the Futures game, got brought up to uh, Binghamton, and he's starting to hit well there. When do you think the Mets see him at the big leagues, and do you think he's going to end up having to move off a shortstop because of Rosario being around? I think he can play shortstop, not as good as Rosario, so you'd want him at second, where I think he profiles perfectly fine. And I'd, I'd estimate him as a late 2019 at best, but realistically, maybe early 2020. Okay. My next guy I'm curious about is uh, Peter Alonzo because the reports of him is that obviously he's put up the huge power numbers, starting to hit in Vegas. The scuttlebutt that's been going around is that the Mets are hasn't promoted because of the defense. Do you think that should be the impediment to get him up here? you feel like he should be up here by September? I'd like him up by September. Like, if you tell me you want him to keep this hot streak in Vegas going for the next three weeks or whatever... No problem. Like, I can live with that. But he needs big league time before this year is out. And you need to be able to go in the offseason and say, we think Pete Alonso can be our opening day first baseman or not. Uh, his defense certainly will never be great. But his work ethic is off the charts. So you're going to get the, the best he's got. It might, it might be average. It might be a tick below average but I believe the bat is going to play enough that you can live with the defense being what it is. It's fair to talk about him now because a year ago, all the rage was about Dom Smith being the first base of the future, and he just yeah. fell off the map. Like, Where do you think like the worm turned for him where they gave up on him and just basically stuck him out in left field just to rot in AAA? I, I don't know what went wrong with Dom. The handling wasn't great. He certainly had issues with conditioning and things of that, that nature, but he, his role is really murky at best for the Mets going forward. They're, they're playing him in left field so he can get every day at bat. But I think the best idea would be in the offseason maybe swap him for a different prospect for someone that thinks they can get something out of him. Yeah, because I think that makes sense. Now, in terms of like, we kind of hit a lot of the big guys, like, Who's an under-the-radar guy who a lot of Mets fans don't know about right now that you think can be a big factor for this team in a couple of years? There's a few guys that I'm really high on that I want to touch on is quickly. Yeah. Uh, the Kingsport double-play duo. Luis Santana at second and Shervian Newton at shortstop. Both are crushing Kingsport and both have good athletic profiles that I think they should be able to stick at their positions if the team wants, 
and their bats are progressing very well to the point where they're getting noticed outside of the organization. And I think at worst is if, as long as they keep developing as they are, they could be utility players or potential starters at the big league level. And another one that I really want to touch on is uh, Tony DeBrell, a right-hand pitcher. They drafted him in the fourth round last year, and he's been destroying Columbia, uh, low A. And last night he had a 10-strikeout game. I think he profiles as a number four starter. Okay. Now, I think, I'm glad you brought me the inside of the minor leagues. My, question, my last question to you is, if Will Pons actually came to you, Joe DeMeo, and said, we are putting you in charge of our plan to fix the Mets, big leagues, minor leagues, whatever, what would your big vision for 2019 be? Wow, if I'm in charge of everything, that would be fun. Um, internationally, I'd certainly get more aggressive. They've been aggressive, but I'd be even more aggressive. I am a little more cautious with the minor leagues, so I wouldn't be super aggressive pushing guys, but I would certainly look into trading one of the arms. I would... I would think I could get enough of a haul for Syndergaard that I can rebuild the offense, which is really what needs to be rebuilt right now. And I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't assume any uh, payroll expansion out of them, so I couldn't imagine I'd be, could be too aggressive in free agency. Okay, so you would prefer to trade the Grom, or Syndergaard over to Grom if you had the choice? Yes. I think the Grom's going to age well as the way he's pitching. Syndergaard, there's a little more risk. They need him to be healthy and good for a second half because if he, if so, a guy like him could bring a monster return, like Chris Sale, at least Chris Sale type return. And they could use that because they do not have that kind, those kinds of young impact position players that a lot of the winning teams do now. Right. They they need to invest more in that. Uh, the pitching obviously is good. But they have, uh, and they have more pitching coming through the chain. So you have Justin Dunn, who recently entered the top 100, David Peterson, Anthony Kay. So you have all these guys that I think in the next year to year and a half should be big league options. So I, I don't think they're short on pitching. All right. I know you've got to run. So before you go, do you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you've been up to? Absolutely. You could follow me on Twitter at PSL2Flushing. And that's P.O., not, not the number. Uh, follow me. I cover all the minors. I rant about the major league stuff like everybody else. And you could check out my work at the 7 Line, at Amazing Avenue. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. No problem. Thanks for the time, Joe. Mike, you take care. Take care. That was Joe DeMeo from the, who contributed to the 7 Line and the Amazing Avenue talking, talking Mets minor leagues. Stay tuned for our two-minute drill where I give my thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp right after this. All right, and we're back with today's two-minute drill. Today we're going to take a dive into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, talking about the latest movie out from Marvel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, that came out earlier this month. I'm a big MCU guy. I got hooked in around the Avengers, went back, caught up, haven't missed a movie since. I have been busy. I've not gotten a chance to see it until recently, and I have some thoughts on the movie. First of all, it's a solid film. I mean, the first one was better in my opinion. This one is fine. It's fine to start a movie, but 
Obviously, it pales in comparison to the movies from earlier this year from Marvel. Both Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War are obviously going to be better. The problem I have with this movie is that it doesn't know what it wants to be. The main point of this movie, it's set after Captain America Civil War. Ant-Man Scott Lang is on house arrest for his role in the movie and what happened in Cap 3. And the main, other main characters from Ant-Man 1, uh, Dr. Pime and his daughter Hope Mandine, who becomes a wasp in this movie, breaks Scott out from house arrest to try and find uh, Dr. Pine's wife, Janet, who's lost in the quantum realm. They want to make this a serious movie at that point, make it all about finding Janet, but there is also a comedy side to this. And they try and balance the two. It doesn't work out great. You can see this in how they treat Michael Pena's character, Louise. Pena was the breakout star of the first one. His, he had a lot of improv moments, very funny. So their response was they add him more of this movie, but they scripted his stuff. So he wasn't able to do what he does best, and it shows. The other problem this movie has is that it very the villains are weak. They really are. In the past movies this year, you had Killmonger in Black Panther, and Killmonger was ridiculous. He's a great backstory, great motivation for a villain. Thanos, forget Thanos. He was in a class of his own. This one has kind of two villains, and neither one of them really fills the role. You have Hannah, John Kamen's character, who's playing the re- typical revenge, serious villain, had a bad backstory, is trying to get justice for what happened to them. You have Walter Goggins' character, Sonny Birch. And he's the comic villain, where it seems like he's just out to make money, get rich quick scheme. He fits totally if you want the movie to be a comedy. Hannah John Kamen's character fits it if you want to be a serious movie. By trying too hard to serve two masters, the movie was not as good as it could have been. And that's disappointing because it had a chance to be a really good movie. There were a lot of cool visual effects in it. They loved playing with Ant-Man's size and doing all sorts of sight gags with that. And those were always great. But until they commit on a direction, these movies are just going to be fillers in the MCU. And that's a disappointment. They have some good actors on those movies. They really put the waste by not deciding what direction they want to go. We'll say stick around for the post credits. It does tie into Infinity War at that point. I'm not gonna say more than that. It is more like if you're an MCU completist, go see it. If not, it's one of those you could probably wait for Netflix. No real hurry to go to the theater, in my opinion. And that's gonna do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests Dan Federico and Joe DeMeo for coming on to talk trade deadline baseball. If you want to get more good stuff like this podcast, be sure to check out our blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just search for the Just End the Suffering podcast in the iTunes store. Be sure to leave your feedback and star ratings as they help shape what the podcast will be in the future. If you made it to the end of the show, feel free to tweet me at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-331 with the hashtag AntManIdentityCrisis. We'll have a brand new episode coming out next week. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Trey Turner and Sean Newcomb.